Hello, everyone, and welcome to Women in the Word. My name is Amy Foster, and it's just my privilege to be studying with you each and every week. So thanks so much for being with us this week. I know that right now, not, not many of us are doing much traveling, but I have great hope that we will travel again in the future. And personally, there are a lot of wonderful things in the world that I would really like to see. So I want you to just take a moment and let your mind drift to some travel dreams for a second. I want you to think about some wonders that you would like to see. Maybe you're thinking of the Grand Canyon or the Rocky Mountains, or maybe you've crossed the ocean and you're thinking of the Colosseum in Rome or the Eiffel Terrace in uh, the Eiffel Tower in Paris. Can you imagine traveling all the way to those remarkable sites and getting so close and stopping in front of the sign that says Eiffel Tower this way? And you just stop right there and you never lift your eyes to see the wonder of the Eiffel Tower because you are so focused on the sign. What a tragedy. What a waste that would be. Sometimes I think that John has chosen to refer to Jesus' miracles this way as signs because they are miraculous and powerful things, but they are not the main thing. The main thing is Jesus. They are pointing to the Son of God who's come from God, who works with the power of God, and is here to invite us to live in the presence of God forever. Sometimes it's hard for us to see the main thing because the main thing isn't always something we can see with our eyes or touch with our hands. It's not always a visible thing. Although it's very real, we can't see it. Things like holiness and forgiveness and power and eternal life. Those aren't things we can see with our eyes, but Jesus came to help us understand those things. He came, and as he teaches us about those things, he's trying to help us see the invisible. So sometimes Jesus uses visible things to help us grasp and understand the invisible. If we're going to learn from Jesus, we all have to learn to lift our eyes and look at the main thing that Jesus is teaching. So our job is to keep lifting our eyes, see the main thing. Otherwise, just like the people in Jesus' day, we will never gain true spiritual sight. In the chapter that we're looking at today, John chapter 4, Jesus is doing a lot of things to get people's attention. He wants their attention, but he wants to direct their attention to the main thing, to himself. He wants them to see the Son of God bringing the kingdom of God. That's what Jesus is doing. So where are we in the story of John's gospel? Let's catch up for just a little bit. People are talking about Jesus all over Jerusalem. They're talking about him because he's done some pretty spectacular things there. We remember he cleansed the temple with power and anger and authority, and that certainly got people's attention. We know it got Nicodemus' attention. And we also know it got the attention of the religious leaders in Jerusalem. They're talking about Jesus and they're wanting no more attention to go to Jesus. So what Jesus chooses to do is to avoid a premature conflict in Jerusalem with the leaders of Israel. So he departs Judea, which really is the religious center of the whole area, and he heads north. He's going toward Galilee. There's no doubt that Jesus is led by the Spirit of God in his travel plans here. 
So we're going to be begin and pick up this story in John chapter 4. You can begin reading with me in verse 3. And Jesus left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. All right, I'm going to ask you to take a look at your maps. You have these in your notebooks, and we're going to put one on the screen for you here. You can clearly see on the map that if you're traveling from the southern region called Judea to the northern region of Galilee, the most direct route would be to go straight through the middle of the land. That's the region of Samaria. But oh dear, this poses a problem for any Jewish traveler. It's a problem because there's a long-held conflict between the Jews and the Samaritans. And in fact, if you were a devout Jew, you would choose a much longer route. You would probably cross the Jordan River to the east, and you would travel on the eastern side of the river just to avoid contact with Samarians. I want to explain some of the, uh, the background, the history of that conflict. There's really two reasons for this hatred, but we first need to understand the, the, the people living in Samaria, they were of Jewish descent. They were from the tribe of Ephraim and Manasseh. They were among the people who had been enslaved in Egypt. They'd been through the Exodus. They'd gone through the wilderness wandering. And then they came in and they possessed this promised land, just like all the other Jewish people. But years later, about 722 BC, all of the northern part of this Jewish land, it was conquered by the Assyrians. And the Assyrians chose to deport most of the Jews to take them out of Samaria and to import their own people. There were just a few Jews remaining. They were the stragglers. And many believe that those remaining Jews intermarried with the Assyrians. Thus, um, their word, not mine, but defiling their pure Jewish ancestry and perhaps also compromising their religion. So that's one reason for the hatred, but there's another reason, and uh, some contend that actually they didn't defile um, themselves in that way, that those Jews who remained um, were true to their race, but they'll say actually it wasn't about racial impurity, it was about a religious schism or a religious split. And what we know about the Jews and Sumerians, they only accepted as God's truth the first five books of the Old Testament. Those are the books that we call the Pentateuch. And that means they rejected everything that came later, which included God's instructions about how to build the temple in Jerusalem, God's instructions about temple worship and how the priest would serve there. Because the Jews in Samaria don't accept this, they build their own temple on Mount Gerizim. They institute their own priesthood and they put in place their own form of worship. And that was in direct opposition to the word of God that he had given later in their history. So that is probably a source of this conflict as well. And that conflict is going to reveal itself in this meeting that we see today. So a devout Jew would always have one goal. If he needed to travel, he was going to avoid all contact with Gentiles and all contact with Samaritans. But we have Jesus, who is a Jew, and he's choosing to go straight through Samaria. Clearly, he's led by the Spirit of God, and clearly, he has a divine agenda. 
What we know just from the geography, the trip from Judea to Galilee on foot, it would take Jesus and his disciples about three full days of walking. So this interaction that happens here in Samaria, near the well at Sychar, that's right about the halfway point. So we can assume Jesus has been walking a long, hot journey for a day and a half at this point. And it tells us that he's weary. We know it's a hot, arid land. So wearied, we can assume that he's hot, he's tired, he's thirsty, he's parched, his feet are sore, he may have blisters. It is a great reminder to us that divine Jesus put on a human body and he's experiencing all the things that a human would experience in the middle of a journey like this. So our story is going to begin here with weary, thirsty Jesus sitting at a well in Samaria. Now, I want to say a thing or two about wells also. A well in the ancient world, in the arid world, was a social gathering spot. That's very clear. But a well in the biblical record is something special. A well in the biblical record is a place of encounter. And it's oftentimes where divinely ordained meetings happen. And that's what we're going to see happening today. So as Jesus interacts with this woman at the well, he's going to follow a pattern that he's already established. He's going to begin a conversation about something visible, something like water, in order to teach her about something invisible, eternal life. And all through the conversation, we're going to see her struggle to understand. Jesus will keep shifting to spiritual things and she will keep shifting back to physical things that she can understand. It will look a little bit like a ping pong match if you're outlining this conversation. Begin reading with me in uh, verse seven. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. So Jesus begins with something physical, something vital to life in, in the land. He asks for water, give me a drink. And to say that this woman was surprised is actually a bit of an understatement. She's pretty shocked because Jesus is really pushing through some cultural barriers of the day right here. He's actually barging through some cultural barriers We've already said that a Jew would despise any kind of interaction with a Samaritan, but we also have to note a Jewish man would not have any public conversation with a woman. I've actually read accounts that say Jewish rabbis wouldn't even acknowledge their own wives in public. So those barriers are definitely in place, but there's a third barrier here. Jesus has asked this woman for a drink. Jesus has no bucket or water jar. If she's going to draw water and offer it to Jesus, he's going to have to use her cup, her bucket, her utensil, and that is going to make a Jew ceremonially defiled and unclean. So Jesus is breaking all of these barriers. I don't want us to miss this because I think the first invisible thing Jesus is revealing here is the heart of God, the nature of God. God does not see boundaries. God does not see prejudices. God sees no one is unworthy, less qualified, less than. Human beings made up those boundaries, and Jesus is showing us that God is no respecter of those kinds of boundaries. 
So Jesus breaks through, he asks her for water, and right away we see her confusion. First off, she is confused about his identity. She sees a Jewish man standing in front of her. How can you ask me for a drink? And listen to Jesus' answer. This is verse 10. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and what it is that is, and excuse me, who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Okay, Jesus has just made the big shift. He is not talking about well water anymore. He's talking about living water. And he begins by saying, if you knew my identity, and if you knew that God was offering you a gift, you would ask me. And the word he uses for gift is a word that emphasizes freeness, totally free. God is offering something at no cost to this woman. It's something she does not have to purchase or earn. Right away, we can see here, Jesus is making it known that the great work of God is a gift of grace. It's a gift of grace. And water is a common metaphor that is used all through the Bible. And so Jesus is using the water metaphor here with living water. Water in the Bible will usually describe both the cleansing work that comes from forgiveness, and water can also describe the restorative, the new life that's experienced in salvation. Hundreds of years before Jesus spoke about living water, the prophet Ezekiel described those two great works of God. Look at Ezekiel 36, 25. I will... I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. That's describing the the purification that comes from forgiveness. And then it goes on to describe the new life aspect. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. These really are the greatest needs for our spiritual life. And Jesus is saying, I'm taking care of these needs. I'm doing it with living water, and it is a free gift, totally free. Now, the woman enters back into the conversation with Jesus, and you're going to see the push and pull going back and forth as she struggles to understand what they're talking about. Look at verse 11. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and this well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us this well and he drank from it himself as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, Give me this water so I won't have to be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. All right, again, she's still questioning Jesus' identity. She's questioning the giver. She's saying, it's not possible for you to draw water. You don't have a bucket. She's questioning his identity. She's also questioning the gift, this living water that he's offering. She's actually a little insulted here, I think. Are you suggesting your water is better than Jacob's water? Because here's what we know, that was a famous well. 
That was Jacob's well, and that was well-respected water. But Jesus starts pointing out the difference between the visible and the invisible. He points out physical water only has physical properties. It will satisfy your thirst for a little while, um, but not forever. Living water, the water that Jesus is offering, it gives spiritual life that lasts forever. And it has a refreshing, restoring aspect to it. It has a vitality to it that is ongoing. And Jesus compares it to something very visible. He, he compares it to a perpetually bubbling spring. Okay, he's giving her something visible to understand something invisible. If you ever take a trip to the Holy Land, you're going to learn that there's a difference in the quality of water there in an arid place. First, you have water that's gathered up and stored in a cistern. That water is not fresh. It's stored underground. It doesn't taste fresh. It tastes and smells both a little bit dank and a little bit earthy. That's the lowest level of water. A step up from that is well water. It's better, but still a little bit earthy. But do you know what the best water is in this land? The most refreshing water? It's that water that bubbles up fresh from a spring and it never stops. That kind of water is the best kind of water and it is an endless supply. So Jesus is giving her this visible thing to understand a totally new way of living, being spiritually alive each day, refreshed and renewed by the presence of God. That really is more than she can imagine. She hasn't grasped what he's talking about yet, but it sounds pretty good. She wants it. And Jesus has already told her it's free. He's graciously offering to give it to her. But first, they need to have a little other conversation. Verse 16, the conversation continues. Jesus says to her, go and call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. All right, it is socially appropriate for Jesus to invite her husband into the conversation at this time, but that's not really what Jesus is doing. Jesus is confronting her with the truth. And it is a gentle confrontation. She has to accept the reality of her sinful life in order to receive saving grace. It's really an invitation to her need. And don't you love that Jesus didn't start this whole exchange with cold, hard truth? As this woman approached him at the well, he didn't point a finger and say, I know you, you've had five husbands. He started with grace. Do you want to ask me, for living water. He always begins with grace. And in this short exchange right here, it's very subtle, but I really don't want you to miss his gentleness and his compassion with this woman. It is a difficult conversation. And we always have to remember, it's a Jew talking to a Samaritan. It's a man talking to a woman. But more importantly, it's a holy, sinless guide talking to a sinner. And it's full of gentleness and compassion. Two times in there, you hear him say, you are right, this is true. He is being affirming with her and he's being respectful. 
And you have to consider she's a woman who is probably very rarely affirmed or respected. And that's how Jesus is talking to her. And the truth he's exposing is five husbands. So we know it's highly unlikely that she is married and then lost to death and then remarried husbands five times in a row. We can surmise that the five husbands suggest something immoral about her life. Jesus is the one who knows every heart. He doesn't have to surmise. He is pointing this out. Um, this is a, a pattern of immorality in her life. Jesus is letting us know that she's moved through husbands and men in marriages in a way that violates God's holy standard. And the way she's living right now with a man she's not married to, that too is a violation of God's holy standard. And God has one word for that. The word is sin. This woman has a deep, thirsty soul need. She is a sinner. Romans 3.23 helps us all understand this. It says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And this woman's sin, just like my sin and your sin, it separates her from the holy presence of God. It separates her from a relationship with God. Romans 6.23 helps us understand that. It says, And the wages of sin is death. Death meaning eternal separation from God. But the verse goes on, but the gift of God, I want to say the free gift of God, is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So it's completely loving and necessary for Jesus to point out the truth of her condition here. He's standing beside her and it's like he's saying, your soul is dead because of sin. Your soul is thirsty and I have water for you. She has to agree with God on this sin issue in order to receive the gift of new life. We will always see this with Jesus. Grace and truth always go together. But I hope you've noticed that true grace softens truth. It makes truth compassionate and gentle here. Very slowly, I think she's beginning to lift her eyes. She's beginning to recognize what's happening here may be a little supernatural. She says, sir, I think you might be a prophet. I think you are a prophet. And then she gets a little entangled in that old religious conflict about where the Jews in Jerusalem worship and where the Sumerians worship. And she tries to pull Jesus into that visible argument. But Jesus won't go there with her. He won't entertain that conversation. It's an old debate. And he tells her, we're not going to talk about that because something new is about to happen. Verse 21. Jesus said to her, her woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You, the Sumerians, worship what you do not know. We, the Jews, worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshiper will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit. Those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Okay, you can kind of hear the anticipation and the momentum as Jesus is saying, the hour is coming, the hour is coming, the hour is coming. He's telling her he's establishing a new temple. He's establishing a whole new way to worship. And when he says the hour is coming, the hour he's speaking of is the hour of his passion. 
when he will voluntarily die on a cross to pay for the sins of the world so that people can be forgiven and living in a relationship with God for all time. This has been God's plan from the very beginning. God is always gathering to himself a family, a community of believing people who can live in the presence of God and worship God together. That's the gift. That's the gift that God has to offer. And when it says he's seeking people to give that gift to, he's seeking her. God is seeking the Samaritan woman right now. And if we've had that experience, God has sought us also. He wants us all to be spiritually alive, forgiven from our sins, and in a relationship with him. So that is why Jesus is always moving this conversation from the physical to the spiritual, because these are spiritual realities, every one of them. And Jesus makes it abundantly clear here. He says, God is spirit. God is spiritual, meaning he can't be confined to one physical shape or physical mass that we can lay our eyes on and see. That is not God. And guess what? You are spiritual too. You are spiritual. You have a spirit or a soul. And this is the part of us that has the capacity to be in relationship with God. Every one of us has a spirit. It's either dead and disconnected from God because of our sin, or it is alive and refreshed and reborn because of the work of Jesus. God's goal, which is Jesus' goal, is a spiritual goal. He wants a connection formed between the human person's spirit and the spirit of God. And the only way that connection happens is through the spiritual work of Jesus. That's the gift that Jesus is offering this woman. And I think we can all understand that. We know on any given day, anybody can walk into a temple, a church, a cathedral. They can go through the physical movements of worship. But if their spirit is not connected to the spirit of God through the work of Jesus, it is not worship by God's definition. True spiritual worship must go through Jesus. He's the one who makes it possible. And you have to see Jesus' true identity in order to receive that gift. I think she's pretty close here. Not quite yet, but she is pretty close. Look at verse 25. She says, the woman says to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. I think thunder must have gone off when he said that. This is really pretty remarkable because in all of Jesus' other encounters up to this point, he veils his deity. He doesn't let it fully show. I think it's fully showing right now when he says, I am he, I am the Messiah. Many people think that the Samaritans didn't have this false view that Messiah would be a political leader. And so there was no risk of them putting Jesus in that political position. So Jesus has the freedom here to say, lift your eyes and see the Messiah is here. We learn a little bit about her too. The the Messiah had been promised way back in Deuteronomy. She knows her Bible. She knows those first five books of the Old Testament. And she believes the promise of God that he is sending Messiah. And Jesus is standing in front of her saying, I am the promise. The promise is here. It's a pretty dramatic moment until the disciples sort of stumble and bumble 
into it. They, they make an interesting uh, entrance here. One writer joked, and this is the only joke I have for you today, so take some time and enjoy it. He said they stumbled in because they'd been weary from searching for kosher food in Samaria. That's all I've got. All right, they do stumble in. They're stunned to see Jesus talking to a Samaritan woman, but strangely, they don't ask him about that. And the woman doesn't even notice. She is so captivated by what's happening there with Jesus. She leaves her water bucket. She rushes back into town and she says to the people, come see a man who told me all I ever did. Can this be the Christ? You hear a little bit of doubt, but she's so hoping. She's on her way to believing. I think that process has begun. And her testimony is so compelling that they too, they leave their water buckets and their chores and they start flocking out of town toward this well to see if this man could be the Christ. And what follows as the people are traveling out of Samaria to, to meet Jesus is a little teaching interlude here between Jesus and his disciples. And he's trying to teach them the importance of this moment. And it really is a moment, a, an evangelistic teaching. He uses the exact same teaching style that he uses with the woman. He starts with things that are visible to try and move them to invisible ideas. And they actually are pretty slow to learn, just like the Samaritan woman. They're going to keep focusing on material things like food. And Jesus is going to keep talking about spiritual things. Let's listen to their conversation in verse 31. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging Jesus, saying, Rabbi, eat. But Jesus said to them, I have food to eat that you don't know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? But look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Okay, so as many people are flocking out of town to see Jesus, the disciples keep saying, Jesus, come sit down, leave all that, come eat, rest yourself. They're, trying, they're distracting him. And Jesus makes a very clear point. He's going to prioritize these spiritual things. He's prioritizing that and not thinking about food. And he lets them know that he is completely satisfied and nourished when he's doing his father's will, when he's doing his father's work. Jesus is going to repeat this to the disciples over and over and over again. In John chapter 6, verse 38, he tells them, I have come from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And then in verse 40, he says, This is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. So Jesus is prioritizing this unseen, invisible thing, eternal life for thirsty souls. But they continue in their dullness. So he starts giving them some more concrete visual examples to help them understand. He says, look, lift up your eyes, look to the fields. They're white, they're ripe, they're ready to be harvested. I think there are two possibilities here. I think one could be very literal. 
I think the fields in Samaria may be ripe for harvest. And he can easily point to them and say, look at the fields, they're ripe for harvest. I don't know what kind of crops grow there, but I can imagine what a cotton crop looks like when it's ready to be picked. Maybe it was literal and it looked just like that. There's another possibility. Maybe Jesus was speaking figuratively here. And something interesting I learned, Sumerian men at this time, they wore long flowing white robes. Maybe Jesus is gesturing towards town and saying, look at the green fields, see the white crop as these men in their white robes are traipsing across the grass, coming to Jesus. Either way, the message is clear. The time is now. It's time to harvest their souls for eternal life. And Jesus goes on to teach them that everyone in the kingdom of God plays a part in this work of God. He said, some sow seeds. And we've just seen an example of that. The woman went into town and said, come see a man who told me all I ever did. She's sowing a seed. We do this when we sit down over coffee with a friend and say, let me tell you how Jesus changed my life. That's sowing a seed. He says, others will harvest. It's a little harder to understand what that means. I think harvesting means some will participate in the process that helps people move from question to belief. Some of us participate. Regardless of which one you do, everyone plays a part. Everyone rejoices when the harvest come in, comes in. This really is Evangelism 101, and it's pretty humorous because Jesus is the professor, and Samaria is the lab, and the results are pretty perfect. They're actually incredibly impressive here. Verse 39 says, Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed there for two days and many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe for we have heard for ourselves and we know this is indeed the savior of the world. So their first step was believing in the woman's testimony and that attracted their attention. It drew their eyes to Jesus the way a sign draws our eyes to a wonder. And then their next step was to just lift their eyes and look at Jesus. And what they do is pretty remarkable here. They just ask Jesus to stay, abide with us, dwell with us, Jesus. And this is remarkable because everywhere else that Jesus goes, the people say, do a miracle for us, Jesus. Give us a sign, work a wonder. And they don't ask Jesus for that. They simply ask him to stay. I love this because there's a direction all through the Old and the New Testament that God gives us that says, draw near to me and I will draw near to you. And that's exactly what they're doing. Jesus, just be close to us. Let us look at you. That's what they're doing here in this encounter. Jesus stays with them for two days. He shares himself with them, which is the word. They experience the word of God and the result, many, many believed. Many believed here. It was each person's actual encounter with the word of God that worked this miracle in their life. And the word believed there, it means total trust, entrusting their life to Jesus, relying upon Jesus as the savior of the world. 
It's the first recorded instance of cross-cultural evangelism. It's the first large people group that all collectively, they recognize the identity of Jesus, the savior for the world. It's such a distinguishing mark for a formerly despised group of people. And again, it shows us the heart of God. But we know Jesus' evangelism instruction is still true for us today. We all live in God's kingdom. That means we are busy doing God's work. Some will sow seeds, some will harvest. We will all rejoice when people put their faith in Jesus. But for that to happen, we all have to lift our eyes, don't we? We have to lift our eyes and see people the way Jesus sees people. We can't look out and see bodies. We have to see souls. Souls. Human beings have spirits. We have souls, and those souls are eternal. They will exist forever, either separated from God in torment or united to God in fellowship. That's how we have to lift our eyes and look out at the world in which we live. And I'll confess to you, I don't always do this. I've had kind of an interesting thing happen in me the last year or so. I've come to absolutely hate grocery shopping. And I don't understand it because I love to cook, but I hate going to the grocery store. I feel my tension rise as I pull into the parking lot and I habitually start praying. And my prayer is, Lord, get me in and out of here fast and give me a quick line and a speedy checker. And there's this other little wish, and I never say it out loud because it's terrible, but it's keep all those slow people out of my way. If they're blocking the aisle with a cart, reading the labels, looking up recipes on their phone, Lord, can you get them out of my way? I don't say it, but I'm thinking it. And I'm just confessing to you, I'm not looking at people the way God looks at people. I'm looking at people as barriers and burdens and not as souls. So I've had a little check in my spirit since Christmas. I've been praying differently. I still don't like going to the grocery store, but I sit in the parking lot and I pray a different prayer. And I'm just going to tell you nothing dramatic has happened yet. There've been no life transforming experiences in the grocery store, but I will say God is changing my vision. I now sit in the parking lot and I say a new prayer. I say, God, show me if someone needs kindness or mercy or grace in the grocery store. Let me show it. And then I say, God, if there's anybody starving to death in this, so, in this store because they don't know you, give me eyes to see it and let me tell them. And so I'm just trying to see a little more like Jesus. In this story, we see Jesus. He came to sit beside the wells and tell thirsty people that living water was available. And we know that Jesus ascended and he now sits at the right hand of his father and he left that message with us. And he asks us to carry that message to thirsty places, to carry it into boardrooms, to cubicles, to carpools, to grocery stores. Wherever we are, we carry the message, but we first have to lift our eyes and see people as souls. We have a pretty significant warning in the words of Mark 8, 36. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world but forfeits his soul? Okay, let's go back to the story. After two days in Samaria, Jesus resumes his journey. He heads north to Galilee. 
And we learned something pretty interesting about the Galileans in these first few verses. We know in the near future, they are pretty much universally going to reject Jesus. They're going to refuse to see his identity as anything other than the local carpenter or Mary's boy. But in this moment, they we're told that they welcome him, they embrace him eagerly, they welcome him into the community, they take him into their hearts, and it tells us it's because they saw the signs he performed in Jerusalem. We know that many of the men do, did travel to Jerusalem for the feast and saw what Jesus did there when he cleansed the temple with power and authority. When those men came back, they talked about it. So if the people hadn't seen it for themselves, they had heard about it and they welcomed Jesus because of that. They saw the sign as he cleaned out the temple. There, there are some who believe that while Jesus was in Jerusalem, he was also healing people and maybe exercising demons. That's not recorded for us here, but this reference to his signs suggests that may be true. They welcome Jesus in Galilee because he can perform miracles. Let's be real clear about this. They are work, welcoming the miracle worker, but they are not yet recognizing him as the Messiah. They have not been able to lift their eyes and see his true identity yet. Pick the story up with me in verse 46. And so Jesus came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus, you, can, you might want to take a look at your map, and we'll put the map back up on the screen. This area where Cana and Capernaum, it's up by the Sea of Galilee in the north. I want you to know that Cana and Capernaum are probably about 20 miles apart there. You can see Capernaum, it's to the northeast of Canaan. And the text can be a little confusing. The man from Capernaum keeps saying, come down, come down. Sometimes in the Bible, down doesn't mean south. It means a change of elevation. So he is saying, come down, but he's actually talking about a 20-mile journey to the north, northeast. And this official has come all the way from Capernaum because his son is at death's door. And this official is desperate for Jesus to come heal his son. He's making a request of the miracle worker, Jesus. It's clear he believes that Jesus does have some healing power, but what he doesn't yet understand is that Jesus' power could work remotely. Jesus' power could actually heal his son without even being in his presence. His power could travel 20 miles without Jesus. So he's begging Jesus to come heal his son, and I want you to listen to Jesus' answer to him in verse 48. But... It sounds like a pretty heartless and cruel answer if you don't understand the original language. Jesus will use the word you. That makes it sound to us like he's speaking directly to the Father. The word you that Jesus used there was plural. So for our understanding, it's as if Jesus was saying you all, the whole crowd, or y'all if he were in Texas. Here's what Jesus said in response to this man's request, come heal my son. So Jesus said to him, unless you all see signs and wonders, you will not believe. You will not believe. This is a rebuke from Jesus. It's a censure for him. And we have to remember he knows the true heart condition of every person in that crowd the same way he knew the heart condition of that Samaritan woman. 
Jesus knows all. And he's making a charge against them that they're unbelieving unless he prove himself with a sign or a wonder. He's letting them know something important, and this is important to us today. Faith in signs is not faith in Jesus. No one here is disputing that Jesus could do these miracles. They've all come out because they're expecting to see these miracles, but no one is claiming Jesus as the Son of God and the Messiah yet either. We know there were lots of people that flocked to Jesus during this time, many, many people, but we also will find out they're coming for many different reasons. In this crowd, there are some true seekers, people who are willing to lift their eyes and discern the true identity of Jesus. We also know in this crowd there's some true skeptics and cynics, people will, who will continue to ask for another sign and another sign and another sign, and eventually they'll start asking trick questions to try and catch Jesus in an error. And then I think there's probably people in that crowd that are the ancient world's equivalent of our modern-day groupies. They're just people hanging on to the fringes, hoping for a little excitement, maybe thinking they're going to get one of those free meals that Jesus provides, or they're going to get some free kind of healing here too. What we know is that Jesus calls this out, and he will call it out pretty frequently. Take a look at your verse sheet, Matthew eleven twenty. Then Jesus began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Okay, so remember, repent means to turn. Jesus is saying he's denouncing them because they're not understanding Jesus' end goal. Jesus' goal was never about eliminating disease. That was a sign pointing to Jesus' end goal. It was a sign pointing to the Son of God who's bringing the kingdom of God into the world, but they didn't turn from the sign to see the Savior. But this father is pretty desperate and Jesus is rebuking the crowd and the father just interrupts him. And he says one more time, come before he dies. The father's plea is urgent here. And right there on the spot from 20 miles away, Jesus speaks healing words of power. He looks that father in the eye and says, go, your son will live. The text doesn't tell us this, but I think the father looked at his watch in that moment. And I think he made a note. When did Jesus say this thing? We get to see a progression of the father's faith here because he does go. He's willing to go and believe without seeing anything happen right there. You know, he came to Jesus first, believing in Jesus' power. Now he's believing something he'd never considered before. Jesus' actual word has power that can heal from a distance. We know that he believes because he went. He didn't stay there and beg any longer. He believed that Jesus would do this thing. So he rushes back to Capernaum. It's a long way. He probably can't make it in one day. And along the way, he encounters his servant who's running to meet him from home with the news that the son is recovering. And the first thing the man asks is, what time did it happen? What time did it happen? Well, it happened at the exact moment that Jesus spoke those powerful words of healing power. And now we have a different expression for this man. He himself believed. He believed in all of his household. 
This is a belief that signifies completely trusting in Jesus, completely entrusting himself to Jesus. He's looked up at the face of Jesus. He's recognized his identity. He's the Messiah sent from God, and he just trusts Jesus. John refers to this as the second sign. So we have to know it was never about healing the little boy. It was always pointing to something greater. It was a wonder to cause everyone there to lift their eyes and not see a Jewish man standing there, but to see the Son of God with the power of God who came with the purpose of God to save the world. And I love the progression we see in this man because it shows us that in all of us, faith can grow. Belief can grow. It never has to be a stagnant thing because the closer we get to Jesus, the more we lift our eyes and look at him and his identity, the more our trust grows. We're not trusting what God can do for us. We're just trusting God. That's what the man does here. So I think for all of us, Jesus still asks us to lift our eyes. We lift our eyes in order to care for the lost world's souls. But I think we have to lift our eyes and continue to care for our own soul as well. If you have experienced salvation and put your faith in Jesus, you know you can never lose your eternal life. But you may also know that your soul can still get a little parched and dry from time to time. And I'll just tell you, during all this COVID shutdown, that happened to me just a little bit. And I can look back and see a cranky woman at the well in me. I can see somebody saying to Jesus, now tell me about this well and what are we going to do about this water? And Jesus, you've asked me to draw for you, but you haven't even given me a cup. And I'm ashamed of that because I've been worried about so many other things. I miss the true thing, the divine presence of the Son of God standing beside me, whispering in my ear, you're thirsty. You're thirsty, Amy, and I have water for you. Jesus stands beside all of us, offering to refresh us with his spirit if we will lift our eyes and see him. I think the best example we can follow is the example of the Samaritans and just be with Jesus. Just be with him, not demanding anything from him. Lift our eyes from our worries and our anxieties and even from our prayer request. Just lift our eyes and be with Jesus and we can enjoy his refreshing, sustaining presence. And I think any of you who've done that will know like I do, it's like rain falling on hard, dry ground. It just slowly starts softening the ground. It slowly starts energizing what was depleted, and it slowly helps us see Jesus. Our faith can keep growing for the rest of our lives if we will lift our eyes and see Jesus. Simply set our eyes on him, and like this man, we can learn to trust him for anything. Let's pray. God, you are good. And we thank you for making a way for us to live in a relationship with you. That is truly the greatest wonder of the world. And I pray today that no one misses it. I pray for women who are in this study, hearing this prayer, 
who have never taken the step of faith and trusted you with their sin problem and trusted you with their life. Lord, I pray that today they would turn to you and say that they believe. And for those of us who've already made that decision, Lord, I pray that we would be aware of your presence with us every day and you would help us to see the way you see. This is a big request, but you're a big God and so we trust you with it. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.